Welcome to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All, the Well Mama edition. Join us for this limited series where we have conversations with a variety of experts and community leaders in the field of maternal and child health to discuss how to advance maternal health equity in Illinois. Some content described in this episode may be distressing or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. So our guest today is Dr. Ashish Prem Kumar. Dr. Prem Kumar is a maternal fetal medicine clinician researcher at the John H. Stroger Jr. Hospital of Cook County. Dr. Prem Kumar has a particular interest in merging social scientific theory with clinical education practice and research. He has pursued research focused on anthropological questions of risk, stigma, and inequity surrounding pregnancy, particularly among pregnant people with illicit substance use disorders. He also has performed work on racial and ethnic inequities in perinatal health outcomes, as well as the effects of sociopolitical and economic marginalization on adverse health outcomes during the peripartum period. Dr. Prem Kumar completed his residency in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of California, San Francisco. He recently completed his fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at Northwestern in 2020, and he is currently completing graduate training in medical anthropology through the graduate school at Northwestern University. Today, Dr. Prem Kumar will be speaking about ACE scores, PTSD, and their impact on pregnancy and birth. Welcome, Dr. Prem Kumar, to the Skinny Trees podcast. And my name is Kai Holder, and I am a medical and public health student at Northwestern. I'm very interested in the lived environment's effects on maternal child health outcomes. So I'm very excited to facilitate this discussion today. And on that note, I'd like to jump into the first question. So Dr. Prem Kumar, can you first give us a brief overview on the definitions of ACE scores and PTSD? Yeah, so when we end up thinking about ACE scores or adverse childhood experiences, they kind of encompass a wide range of experiences that occur for individuals from birth to uh, technically up to age 18 that range from everything from exposure to interpersonal trauma, either in the sense of you know, witnessing the death of a loved one, witnessing a suicide, but also can expand out to other types of experiences, such as engagement with um, individuals in their social network that may be using illicit substances, family members that may be using illicit substances. Um, So a lot of it kind of is meant to try and understand some of the longitudinal issues that have to do with sort of structural inequities, racism, classism, ableism, um, and how that ends up impacting the social life world of a given individual. And some of the way that these adverse childhood experiences or ACEs manifest is through um, diagnoses, traditionally psychiatric diagnoses, and the relationship between things like post-traumatic stress disorder, which is sort of a some folks would call it an inappropriate coping mechanism, but the idea is that you're exposed to some level of trauma or stress and your body is continuing to relive it in certain ways, either um, through recurrence of and reliving those experiences through flashbacks or through other um, physiologic or experience-like symptoms of that, those experiences. People traditionally talk about PTSD as it relates to experiences of veterans that went to war and came back home, but we're starting to see PTSD over the last 20 to 30 years 
starting to diagnose it among individuals and they're having undergone other particularly traumatic experiences as children. Um, so these are sort of the larger issues when we start to think about wider societal questions of violence and equity and, and, um, and its uh, ramifications of both health and longevity in, in different communities. And thank you so much for that overview of ACEs and PTSD. And I was wondering um, how can adverse childhood experiences and post-traumatic stress impact a person's pregnancy and birth outcomes? Yeah, so this is still a very under-evaluated pathway. We're just starting to kind of, in the last 10 years and really through seminal work by individuals like uh, Dr. Emily Miller at Northwestern and Kathy Wisner also at Northwestern, um, we started to really look at the relationship between mental health and adverse pregnancy outcomes. But what the triggers and what the associations are with mental health issues really we start to move a little bit more uphill and we start to, or rather upstream, I should say, and start to look at those questions of adverse childhood experiences as they relate to the development of mental health disorders. And the idea is that with um, the development, with exposure to adverse childhood, childhood experiences and the subsequent development of things like anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress syndrome, we know that there can be associations with adverse pregnancy outcomes. There's been um, association seen in the epidemiologic literature between um, mental health disorders and things like the development of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So things like preeclampsia, um, associations with preterm delivery and associations as well with uh, low birth weight. Now, how this ends up causing like the true sort of biological pathway is poorly understood. People tend to rest on a theory of HPA access instability. So the idea that um, there's a basically a relationship um, kind of going back to medical school between the hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain, the adrenal glands, which secrete certain hormones that allow for um, regulation of glucose, stress hormones, and what have you, and then, thing, and then um, subsequent relationship between the two. And we think that by causing maternal stress, either through a psychiatric disorder or through um, exposure to adverse childhood experiences, we thereby dysregulate this very carefully controlled axis, causing the increased release in cortisol and thereby somehow causing um, an increased likelihood for things like early preterm birth. Now, this is one theory among many. Um, there are a variety of different ways to explain the relationship between um, the development of psychiatric diseases and adverse pregnancy outcomes that rest on other things like estrogen progesterone imbalances, um, and even then a little bit more of sort of the confounding as it relates to the ability to get pregnant um, and potential association with maternal age. But again, because this data is so, so new and it's still ripe for theorization and further evaluation. And on that note, the American Association of Public Health declared racism as a public health crisis. And can you describe the ways in which structural racism in the United States has contributed to ACEs and PTSD for black and brown women? Yeah, I mean, you could teach a seminar on this. It's really difficult um, to kind of make it concise because truly it extends not just through the historical experiences of people of color and marginalized individuals in the US and abroad, but it is felt through everyday experiences that range from the structural aspects like you mentioned, all the way down to interpersonal experiences. So I think 
you know, the way to adequately capture this type of a relationship kind of comes down through, um, I think probably one of the examples that I like to use which I think kind of elaborates structural racism a little bit nicely is a wonderful study that was done by Arturo Salo and colleagues in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, I think 2017, 2018, um, Dr. Bill Grobman, who's a professor of obstetrics and gynecology and one of Dr. Simon's colleagues was co-author on the study along with um, Dr. Crenshaw through the Department of Preventative Medicine. What they looked at is um, neighborhood segregation here in Chicago and uh, risk for preterm birth. And what they ended up showing is that individuals who primarily live in a highly segregated area have a higher chance of having preterm birth. My own research has demonstrated an association with um, maternal race, ethnicity, and um, and uh, chronic comorbid medical conditions and worsening hypertensive disorders of pregnancy that would lead to preterm delivery. And the idea being is that chronic comorbid medical conditions don't necessarily explain why there's a disproportionate rate of preterm delivery among um, individuals who would self-identify as a racial ethnic minority. So there is something about the built environment, something about the experience of being a minority in America that is causing these things to occur. And it could range from everything from segregationist policies, addresses, healthy food, safe environments in which to be outside, exercise, limited support for um, ancillary services in order to promote overall community and well-being, the gutting of the social safety net, um, the idea that somehow, you know, work for welfare is the name of the game when it, when we think about um, access to appropriate economic resources and longitudinal economic development of certain communities, and then their subsequent investment in those communities to allow for appropriate access, again, looping back towards medical care and um, longitudinal investments in those areas. But it also comes down, which I think a lot of the focus has come down to is these everyday interpersonal experiences of racism and the questions around microaggressions and the questions around longitudinal stress and this question that um, uh, Dr. Geronimus brought up way back in the 90s around weathering the idea that ongoing stress, ongoing inequity throughout the lifespan eventually weathers away at a given individual's ability to be resilient, thereby exposing um, a given individual to worsening stress worsening HPA access disorders and a higher likelihood for chronic comorbid medical conditions that can eventually lead to a decrease in life expectancy, which is what Dr. Geronimus was looking at during that time frame. But what we are arguing, what many researchers are arguing is that we can see it even on a more narrowed window, particularly in the perinatal period. And is it routine for a provider to assess a patient's ACE score in a prenatal appointment? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, so one of the issues comes up with how best to assess for adverse childhood experiences. So there's a variety of different metrics that have been put out there by Centers for Disease Control, um, clinician researchers, public health advocates, and um, at least for our governing body, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, they don't specify one specific way to be able to evaluate for that. Many times we tend to evaluate these in bits and pieces. So, you know, for example, one of the things I hearken to was substance use disorder, and this is one of the focuses of my research. Um, we tend to focus more so on every use of substances, meaning within a given individual's lifespan, have you used substances? And indeed, depending on which type of questionnaire you use to assess for substance use disorder, you may get at familial use of substance, substances, friends use of substances, but doesn't give you a, um, a timeline to that. It just says like, has this happened or are you exposed to this? And thereby it screens you positive or negative. 
That being said, with the recent focus over the last few years within um, uh, medicine and on trauma-informed care, the idea of hearkening to an individual's experiences to be able to inform how one is best to provide care, particularly in obstetrics and gynecology, where we're providing very, um, we're trying to provide very personalized care, but we're also providing care during you know, set during, potentially during clinical settings or environments that can be particularly traumatizing in and of themselves. Again, harkening back to the very troubled history of gynecology here in the United States with, you know, experimentation, you know, as well as forced sterilizations and the, and the very physical aspect of, of performing a pelvic examination when in and, of, in and of itself is uncomfortable at best, painful at worst. Um, and then also thinking about our experience and our role as reproductive health providers in particularly traumatic situations, particularly sexual assault, um, or um, in particularly traumatic birth situations, if there's, for example, an emergency where we have to intervene um, many times on our, without anesthesia on board, these can be particularly traumatic events in and of themselves. So trying to provide some level of trauma-informed care in those circumstances can be really beneficial. Um, and can promote um, improved uh, therapeutic alliance with a given individual who's coming in to receive care. But how one is best to assess for this is really, really hard to say. Um, people have talked about this in the literature. There's a lovely paper that just came out from a group in South Carolina that looked at overall prevalence of adverse childhood experiences in a low-income marginalized community and demonstrated almost two-thirds of individuals screen positive for at least one um, domain of adverse childhood experiences. Again, demonstrating potentially we are actually under evaluating patients for longitudinal trauma and getting a better sense of what this would look like would require a very large prospective study um, over multiple sites and indeed looking at multiple types of social environments. One could imagine things like rural urban, um, racial ethnic mix-up, economic mix-ups to try and be able to understand um, the different prevalences and how best to tailor care in those circumstances. And you spoke a bit about um, the ways in which OB providers are trying to address ACE scores within their patient population. And is there anything primary care providers can do for patients with high ACE scores to minimize adverse maternal outcomes before the patients um, get pregnant? That's a great question. So I think a lot of this because of how we think and how we look clinically is we, at least for the more, I guess, and again, this is no critique of people who are more um, socially conscious and really work in the realm of social justice within medicine, is the idea that somehow we're gonna translate social inequity into clinical diagnoses and thereby engage in pharmacotherapy, behavioral therapy, what have you, in order to promote, in order to reduce adverse pregnancy outcomes. That's kind of like the trajectory that many times people will use much to the chagrin, I think, of a lot of social scientists, which have a big critique of being able to translate social problems into somehow medical diagnoses. But the way that people have traditionally tried to have an impact in these circumstances is kind of along that latter pathway where you make a diagnosis of a psychiatric disorder, which again, not all adverse childhood experiences will lead to a psychiatric disorder. We know there's an association, it's not 100%. But for the subset of individuals who get diagnosed with PTSD, depression, anxiety, what have you, engaging in some form of treatment has been demonstrated to reduce those adverse outcomes. And treatment does not necessarily mean starting medication, right? It really is meeting individuals where they are and having an evidence-based discussion about the utility of everything from therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, pharmacotherapy, what have you, 
in order to be able to engage in those type of um, in those type of remediative effects to try and reduce adverse pregnancy outcomes. So the idea that untreated, so I didn't hearken to this before, but untreated maternal mental health disorders can lead to a higher rate of, uh, of postpartum depression, postpartum psychosis, which are associated with suicide and homicide. So again, sort of hearkening to maternal mortality and, and its relationship with men, untreated mental health. That being said, the other aspects, when we think about adverse childhood experiences and what the primary care provider can do is because the primary care provider truly knows the patient, right? As an obstetrician, I know people for like a year and then they disappear from me until they get pregnant again. And I would say in this circumstance, the primary care provider's job is to also help contextualize the person I'm seeing, right? As a primary care provider, you've built a relationship, you've gotten to know them, you know where they're coming from, you know what their concerns are. That allows me to tailor my care, which is primarily focused on high risk maternal fetal medicine and make it tailored to the patient themselves. And I think that's one more arena in which primary care and reproductive health practitioners can work really closely together to improve the quality of care we're providing for our very marginalized, very vulnerable patients. And you spoke a bit about um, the importance of therapy and what are some other resources for women who have high ACE scores or PTSD to help them learn and seek help if they have postpartum depression? Yeah, so a lot of folks, so a part of it has to do with which healthcare system you're kind of working in because from a state level, and particularly here in Illinois, um, when we look at, and this is kind of, again, looking a little bit further down the proposed pathway of what ends up happening, when you look at the one of the main causes of death here in Illinois for people within the first year after delivery, it's untreated mental health disorders and substance use disorders, right? So the idea that somehow, if we think about this from a linear trajectory, things have gotten so bad from the time they got pregnant up until when year after delivery, that something happens that ends a person's life, right? How we intervene on the back end becomes really, really challenging because we're trying to identify individuals who are at the highest risk for going down that pathway. So there are a lot of resources that are actually available. Many times healthcare systems will have um, social workers that work particularly within the obstetrical setting that work very closely with individuals who are thought to be at high risk for um, developing mental health disorders. So individuals are usually identified by their obstetrician or by a nurse practitioner or family practice doc who um, does prenatal care. As part of an evaluation, they usually are usually seen by a social worker of some kind to be able to offer resources. So community-based resources, as well as medically-based resources like psychiatry, if they think it's deemed necessary in conjunction with discussion with the um, reproductive health provider. Um, the other things that I think are also really critical to keep in mind is that particularly among individuals who do have um, pre-existing mental health disorders and are either contemplating pregnancy or who are pregnant, there are resources around, and particularly here in Chicago, I want to hearken to the Asher Center at Northwestern, which has a particular focus on pregnancy and mental health disorders and really is run by um, a maternal fetal medicine doc, and then a couple of other trained psychiatrists who have a particular interest in that intersection between pregnancy and mental health. 
So those are other resources that um, are accessible. But I think one of the things that, again, harkens to some of the structural inequities in our society is that a lot of these resources for mental health and for restorative justice, when we start to think about adverse childhood experiences, are primarily felt in areas where people may have difficulty getting access to just by sheer geography of the way that Chicago has been built and been built for a purpose is to keep people of color and people who are poor on the margins and keep individuals who would self-identify as, you know, upper class or um, from a racial ethnic standpoint as white in, in the central area. So being able to exact that type of justice also requires a reevaluation of how we think about not just community-based uh, resources in high-risk areas, but also how to make these things more accessible. And there are groups and programs throughout the city that are trying to work on that. Um, and again, um, I, and I, you know, as we're starting to kind of talk about this, part of this is also thinking about where individuals are living, what are their resources, how likely are they to be able to transport, and again, doing a very thorough structural evaluation of their um, ability and their needs can also make sure that we have appropriate access to. Like for example, the patients I see at County, um, we have um, a, a very robust psychiatric team that is able to take on patients. And because of the number, the sheer number of clinics that we have across Cook County, we are able to actually have our patients who may be seen as, because you know we see everyone in Cook County, so as far south as Calumet City, as far north as Riverside, like or far west as Riverside, as far north as like even Arlington Heights, we can have them seen. So I think that's also really critical is utilizing a healthcare system that has sort of broad reaches throughout a given environment to meet people where they are. And to also use novel things um, like telemedicine and telehealth, which obviously because of the pandemic has made it that much easier to make clinicians and other community-based resources more accessible. So I think we're starting to see the landscape starting to change over the next, over the last year that will hopefully improve accessibility to these resources overall. And um, thank you for speaking about the importance of accessibility to healthcare resources and how healthcare systems are um, trying to make healthcare more accessible. I was also wondering if you can um, speak about um, how healthcare professionals can help our society reduce the stigma around PTSD and postpartum depression so women would be more open to seeking help. Yeah, and I think this is one of the things that um, part of this is making sort of reiterating the aspect that, and again, I might be in the minority here or maybe obvious, but as a physician, as someone who trains in this, there's you have a ethical and public, and you essentially have an ethical duty to speak up about social inequity because we know it had it basically causes all of the issues that I am dealing with every single day as a clinician. Mental health issues are no different. And one of the things that I always talk about with my patients and particularly with my patients who have, and again, I hearken to the, the substance use issue because that's one of my main clinical fo focuses is that, you know, the coexistence between, you know, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, what have you, and substance use is very real, right? The quote dual diagnosis that we end up talking about in medical school. But the idea that at the end of the day, these issues are chronic. The idea is this is not a fault that you have. It's not that you lack lack a will to somehow be happy or to you know forget about these issues that you experienced in your life. But the idea is is that 
in some way, you are having a chronic condition that will intermittently flare up. Pregnancy is one of those times that it happens. The postpartum period is one of those times that it happens. And for my patients, I usually will tell them, to be honest with you, it could be because of hormones. It could be because of this HPA access issue. I, I personally, it's of academic interest. What I care about is making sure that you have the power to come in. And what I always tell my patients, what I think is really critical is that a door is always open. So you do not have to sit at home and worry that I'm bothering some doctor or that I am overreacting, that I always have a home to come in and see my doctor either in the clinic or in the hospital, it does not matter. So, you know, just the other day, I had a patient who was doing actually quite well with her bipolar, so like literally did not mention it for her entire pregnancy. And then around about 30 weeks, she told me we were in clinic and she just mentioned, she's like, oh yeah, I feel like cutting myself again. And I was like, oh, you never mentioned any of this when we were talking. And then she kind of unraveled this long story of self-harm and a long-standing history of bipolar disorder that hasn't been treated in the last few years. And um, she was really scared for herself. And I said, just come to the hospital. We will have you seen by psychiatrist. If you feel unsafe, there's no reason to stay at home and think these thoughts. And you know, I think when, when we start to talk about this and be really frank and open about it, um, people start to stop seeing it as, as a burden on people. Because I think many times people will say like, oh, I have this disorder. It's not really real or it's not really that major issue. I'll keep it to myself. But the idea that as a clinician, if you own it, if you speak up about it and you offer resources to allow a person to get connected to care and you normal like normalize the idea that this will flare and this will become an issue and allows people to be that much more engaged in care. And this individual actually ended up coming to the hospital. She got admitted. She got seen by a psychiatrist. She got started on um, antipsychotic and it's doing great. So I think, you know, it's a small story. And again, you know, she delivered not too long ago. So we'll have to see how things go. But that's one of those things where, especially for individuals who have been dealing with these issues for much, much longer than you've even known them, um, being that person that's really, really open can also be um, one of those very small aspects that helps to strengthen um, your connection with a patient. And thank you so much, Dr. Prem Kumar, for joining us today and speaking on mental health and how it impacts pregnancy and birth. We really appreciate this conversation and um, we're glad that you're able to join us today. Perfect. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to set content.